You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. And as we uh, start our uh, service this morning, I wanted to share uh, just a, a brief um, call to worship. Um, and uh, this is just a very simple, very short, but it is a um, way of us coming together um, to start this service in this space being together, uh, even though um, we are um, separated uh, and spread apart. Of course, I do want to let you know that we're going to be meeting with the elders after church this morning to um, discuss all of your responses about your comfortability coming back in person and um, exactly when and how we're going to make that transition. Um, so we're looking forward yeah. to... And I just wanted to add to that, Bob. Yeah. Thank, thank you for mentioning that. I just wanted to add just what a great response I feel like we did have. Uh, the other day when I looked at the responses, they were 45 um, and they might be more now, uh, which you know represents me factor in couples and children. That's a really large sample size for a community our site. Probably more than hundred people represented in that, in that survey when you factor in couples and, and children. So thank you for everybody who participated in it. That's really a helpful tool. That's fantastic. And know that, um, you know, we're aware of the fluidity as more information comes out and we hear more things about vaccine efficacy and all of those. So for those of you who filled things out earlier, your responses might have might have been a little bit different than they would be now and certainly will be, I'm sure, going forward. Um, so we'll obviously be thinking about taking all that into consideration. But like Aaron said, thanks for um Thanks for sharing with us where you are, because we want to make sure this is a decision we make together as a community um, and your leadership is committed to doing that. Um, so as we get started here, we'll um, respond uh, together with the parts in bold. I'll uh, speak the parts not in bold together. And this is our proclamation, our call to worship this morning. Since the beginning, God has been relentlessly pursuing us in love. Though our faithfulness, our faithfulness ebbs, and flows, ebbs and flows, God's love occurs forever. forever. God became one with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. God, God lived, lived and moved and ministered in the margins of power. God incarnate was not what we expected. We did not recognize God in Jesus. Still, we struggle to recognize God with us. And yet, and yet God, God continues to dwell in our midst. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. God of light and life. God of mercy and hope. God of justice. Thank you for continuing to be in our midst. It is within each other and within our relationships and within our communities and this community here that we see you most clearly and most vividly. 
God, we experience you in both the difficult and beautiful things and places and relationships that we have. Make us people who continue to seek after goodness and wholeness and truth. Make us people willing to be convicted to change, to growth, to making this space here at Central, this community here in Los Angeles and Glendale, and this world that we are a part of, a continually renewed place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I wanted to um, share with you a poem. Um, as we start, uh, uh, this is the first Sunday in June, and June is Pride Month um, here. And um, so I wanted to share with you a, a poem that was written by Reverend Anna Blydell and Reverend M. Barclay, who are um, the two people together now who are compiling this amazing resource called Enfleshed um, that you've heard us talking about so much, uh, especially as we've been meeting apart and doing a lot more liturgy. Um, so this is not a piece of liturgy, it's a poem um, and it's called A Love Poem to Queers. Now, of course it comes from their voice and they're both a part of the LGBTQIA community. And so, um, no, I'm reading this from their voice and reading this only as an ally. Um, yeah, but again, this is called A Love Poem to Queers. Queer lovers who long for healing, who ache with exhaustion, who have been alone for too long, who know deep in our bones how very good it is, how very much it hurts, to keep living, to keep loving. Queer lovers, let's remember that which is strange, that which is met with disgust, that which is deemed incompatible, illegal, unworthy, is the very site of the sacred and the source of holiness. Queer lovers, we know far better than they how to live in unlivable places, how to pray in spirit drenched ways in the midst of everyday evil, how to hold each other through impossible choices of inevitable loss. Queer lovers, there is power in staying and fighting for our lives. There is power in leaving for the sake of our lives. Through all the noise and hate and shallow misunderstandings, through all the competing voices, telling us what we have to do to be. We, dear lovers, know what we need. Listen, listen, listen. Queer lovers, we are birthed from something wildly holy. We are made from and for a dream of flourishing, crossing time and space. Our ancestors labored for us to make this possible. The dykes who danced cheek to cheek, the sissies who marched arm in arm, the queers who found God in each other, in alleyways and choir lofts and quiet glances across crowded rooms. The trans godmothers with bricks in their hands and the strength of softness in their flesh. While the police raided, while the church raged. 
While death and destruction have their way, so too do life and love, because they knew, because we know. Disconnecting from delight is deadly. Trusting in delight is a necessary spiritual practice of survival. We queer lovers make a future possible. We need each other and we have each other. We have and are enough. I'll share that here in the chat for you as well. Um, but as we um, begin Pride Month in an identity that has been um, tremendously important to who we are at Central over the years, I thought those were beautiful words to share. Thanks, Bob. Um, and as a reminder, if you don't have something for can go ahead and grab it. I actually forgot and Karis remembered on my behalf and brought me Cheez-Its. She's a keeper. Um, but go ahead and grab something if you haven't yet uh, to continue the theme. And as a reminder, um, in the midst of Pride Month, um, I will be reading a, a poem called Scandalous God. Um, these words. Divine presence, scandalous one, versatile God, you have been called the worst of names. Tossed aside by the hands of tradition, met with violence and neglect by stranger and kin alike, and still you do not conform to the expectations of power, or polite your way into halls of destructions. You, the ultimate transgressor of norms that harm or confine, bear witness to the glory of strange. You, queer one, reveal the gifts of falling outside the lines. You, wild one, break open possibilities within us and around us, whispering in our ear, see me, feel me, desire me. You help us come alive again. Beauty is your passion, love is your motivation, courage is your center. May your spirit be awakened in every space dull with repressed delight, that we may choose to live into the riches of this peculiar life together. Embrace us, O oh God, and lead us in the ways of your love, so promiscuous, so deviant, so free. Amen. And with that in mind, I invite you to join the promiscuous, deviant, free love of the strange God we serve and take the bread and the cup at your pace. Oh, man. I think today we have Dan pinch hitting on announcement. Uh, yeah, it's going to be pretty short, I think. Um, feel free to, if anyone has an announcement that I'm missing, but I think all I have is the gathering continuing uh, Wednesday night this week, 7 p.m. at the Zoom link. Um, is this is the gathering ongoing or do we have a certain do we have like semesters of the gathering or does it it's just goes on and on yeah it's ongoing 
we we do uh, kind of specific areas of discussion from time to time over several weeks, but um, for the most part, we are here on Wednesdays. We're always a small group and always love to have uh, other people popping in whenever you're free. Yeah, and just so everybody knows, um, one of the things we're going to decide today as a board is, um, yes, what moving forward potentially with in-person services might look like. But one of the things we're going to do is I'm going to uh, put out a summer calendar um, that will include um, in-person gathering events like hikes and meeting outdoor at restaurants uh, for holy happy hours and uh, may, may, maybe a brunch at the parsonage out in the lawn here or something like that. Um, so anyway, just be looking out for a summer calendar that uh, we will be creating with events. So as far as announcements go, we don't have anything you know, in place quite yet, but in the next week we will have a lots, hopefully lots to announce. <laughs> anyway, just wanted to put that on your radar. Great, thanks Aaron. Um, now I'm gonna hand it off to Aaron. Uh, that concludes the announcements this morning, thank you. I just stole them from you, I guess there. <laughs> but yeah, um, thanks Dan. So prayer requests, words of Thanksgiving, um, share what you got. If you have something you'd like to um, bring up, please um, feel free to do so by unmuting or you can just type it into the chat column and we'll address it from there. Does anybody have anything they want to share this morning? Hey, Aaron. Um, hey. A mutual friend of Emily and I's, uh, her family moved to Tennessee and on the way to Tennessee, their whole family got COVID. Oh, um, yeah. Brittany, do you know Brittany and Riker? And anyway, the Colorama woman. Okay. Oh, okay. Vaguely, I think. But okay. Yeah, anyway, her and her whole family have COVID oh um, and have been in bed for like a week or so. so they, um, they obviously it. didn't get vaccinated. Say what? Uh, they, they, they're, it's not an asymptomatic case here. Okay. No, they're all really, really sick. Yeah. So, all right, let's pray. And her name's Brittany. And, and what are their last names? Howell. Howell. Okay. All right, cool. Loving God, we lift up this family in dire straits and all that they're going through. And we, our hearts just go out to them um, and all those in our circle of friends and family that have suffered and are continuing to suffer from COVID. We pray for their healing and their, their rest and their peace, especially at a, a difficult time of travel. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, thanks, mate. Anybody else today? I'll just uh, bring up um, and continue to pray for my friend, um, Joel, and specifically his wife, oh, yeah. Holly. Um, I think I shared last time or two weeks ago, I can't remember. Time has no meaning. Um, she, uh, became symptomatic, um, blurred vision, uh, facial numbness and was rushed to the ER and found she has a five centimeter tumor in her brain. Um, so, uh, early pathology results were inconclusive. So they were sent to the Mayo clinic, um, which took a week to analyze them, analyzing them. They just got them back at the end of this last week. It is not cancer. Oh, um, so it's that. not, it's, yeah, it's not malignant. Um, which in many ways is a very good thing. And also they really have no idea what to do. Yeah. So the neurosurgeon 
said, you know, he doesn't recommend um, surgery at this point, but he very strongly recommends a second opinion. He's sort of essentially saying that he doesn't know what to do. So they need to go talk to other doctors. So, you know, obviously it's a really tough situation. Um, she's already symptomatic, so they have to do something about it, but they're, there's not really a clear path on how to do it. So in the weeks ahead, you know, they're going to be meeting with oncologists, um, who apparently is still the person you got to talk to for radiation and chemo. Um, and um, seeing if that's the right route. And then they're gonna to talk to some other neurosurgeons to see if they're gonna do brain surgery. But I've, I've checked in with Joel a number of times. He just, understandably, I mean, he named, she's not even 40 and they have a six-year-old. And so just trying to hold, hold these things and figuring out what does life look like now? And what do we do is just, as you can imagine, overwhelming for them. Yeah. So if you, yeah. could, if you could keep Joel and Holly and Wendell um, if we could keep praying for them, that'd be much appreciated. Let's pray. We lift up Holly and Joel and Wendell in this incredibly difficult circumstance. Our hearts just uh, are poured out uh, on their behalf, and um, especially for Holly and all that she's facing physically as a result of this tumor, even though it's not cancerous. But we pray for her, her health and well-being and, and the well-being of her family, especially little Wendell. We pray for his heart and that uh, he might get the support and all the care that he needs um, with his mom uh, dealing with so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, all right. Well, with that, Max, I think I'm going to hand it over to you. Sounds good. Um, I have a music video for us today, although there's not an actual uh, moving part of the video, but it's, uh, it's the song um, with a still. It's from Semler. I know many of you are already familiar, but um, Semler kind of came out of left field, as it were, um, was number one on the Christian music charts for, I think, a couple weeks. Um, but, um, but she is a, uh, a queer uh, musician, I think, originally from North Carolina, think um, Semler's, her middle name, her first name is Grace, I believe. Um, but uh, a very, um, very apropos uh, and um, deep, Master's kid, um, master's kid. Yeah, so, so exactly. The, 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 the title is called Preacher's Kid. Um, and, um, and it is the life of a preacher's kid and the story of growing up queer um, in in a Christian family and a preacher's family and how she's wrestled with that and um, if you haven't listened yet highly recommend but this is just going to be one of the uh, songs from the album called Jesus of Texas um, so I hope you enjoy I'll put the lyrics in the um, chat too um, but again especially as we lift up our um, queer siblings and neighbors this month for pride um, seems like a fantastic um, song for us all to meditate on. So I will get that up and going now. Yeah, there we go.
My mom turned 18 in the 1960s And she doesn't remember Stonewall To be fair, she can't own a beer kid That the bricks launched at police Would compel me to exist And I think about that now down the ballad ones I love and I don't know yet I voted for you Oh what a terrible honor it is To watch the sky fall as a character witness I spent the rest of the night freaking out I had to get high just to Myself down, but I won't And I cut my hair because I'm worth. I guess the savior beats a friend who thinks you're good enough I hope she finds love and peace And if her kid comes out, I hope that she calls me Oh, what a terrible honor it's been To learn that my blessings are things you call sin I'll spend the rest of my life tearing down the Jesus from Texas you put in the crown. But I won't give up on Yeah. There you go. Um, I again highly, uh, highly recommend digging into that um, uh, album when and if you are able. There's some heavy, heavy themes and lyrics. There are some really funny. Uh, I I laughed a lot in it. She has just a, a an impeccable way of skewering evangelical subculture and yes. growing up in that and not quite fitting in. So. Sounds like yeah, a lot of overlaps with our, our beautiful community here. But if you haven't You're right. heard of her, now now you have. Go listen to her. It's such a good album. I've got like uh, at least three. I know I have three songs from that album on my phone. And uh, I've, I've laughed and I've cried literally listening yeah. to them. 
it's quite powerful. Totally. Thank you. Thank you for sharing her. And uh, in that spirit, and welcome to all of you who have joined us over the last uh, 15 minutes. Um, some of you have uh, you know, found your way here. And um, thank you. And in that spirit of, um, we're, we're talking about queer theology today, this being Pride Month, I thought we should look at queer theology, which is actually the perfect thing for us to look at today after the week after we talked about liberation theology, because in order, I think in order to understand queer theology, we've got to understand its parallels to the larger Christian movement called liberation theology. Um, if you weren't here for that talk, um, you can listen to it on the podcast, but um, I, I'm assuming a lot of you are familiar with what liberation theology, but queer theology is not so much a branch of liberation theology, but it is conversant with it, shares some of its core values and ideas, namely that like liberation theology, queer theology is a theology from the margins. It, that means it seeks to liberate the oppressed and articulate an understanding of the gospel from the margins, a, a, an understanding of the gospel that humanizes certain minorities, namely sexual minorities, in this case, LGBTQ people. So like liberation theology, queer theology lives not at the center of society, um, but on the margins. It is by definition of a theology from the margins and always will be so. Any theology worth its salt is always from the margins, in, in my opinion, as our friend Tad DeLay says, any theology with something to say will always, always conflict with the power structures from which it emerges. In other words, a theology that doesn't challenge the status quo and those in power uh, and speak on behalf of those uh, underfoot, uh, a theology like that doesn't really have anything useful to say. It's basically a theology that exists to keep the privileged and comfortable privileged and comfortable, basically, while keeping others underfoot. Specifically speaking, queer theology is primarily about critiquing and liberating people from the heterosexual and patriarchal definitions of gender and sexuality and marriage uh, that we've been handed and that have become part of the bedrock of our culture and therefore oppressive to anyone who deviates. This is why trans people in particular and non-binary people, uh, intersex people, people who identify as queer and who, you know, quote, transgress the lines between what is culturally defined as feminine and masculine, uh, these people are often rejected and mistreated because they're seen not just as subverting the social order, but the bedrock and the foundation of civilization itself. It's as if they are challenging reality itself. Um, and in a way they are. If you pay attention to what's being said and written on the right today, and I think you should to some degree, <laughs> uh, what you'll hear often is that the reason why many on the right, not everyone, but the reason why a lot of people on the right fear transgender people and the LGBTQ community in general is because they fear the subverting of, of societal order. They believe that such subversions are undermining on a deeper level our ability to define reality and our ability to uh, define moral categories. A major tenet of conservatism, conservatism today, both religious and political conservatism, and they don't, and, and they usually do, uh, I think, often go hand in hand, 
Uh, a major tenet of, con of conservatism today is the belief that reality is not really random, absurd, and chaotic, nor is it just something we create as subjects and is therefore contingent and arbitrary and, you know, quote, deconstructible. Rather, they believe reality is, is ordered, purposeful, and providential, meaning uh, determined and ordained by a divine overseer. Therefore, you know, for them, foundational concepts like male and female, masculine and feminine, these are, these are not just cultural constructs uh, to them that can be challenged uh, uh, and deconstructed, but rather these are unquestionable, undeconstructable forms of divine revelation that are more or less universal, absolute, and timeless. But if you peel back the layers of that conservative point of view, you begin to see how that thinking is really just based in anxiety and a way of, it's a way of reinforcing certain social hierarchies, namely our own Western Christian patriarchal hierarchy that puts, you know, white Christian straight men at the top of the social ladder and endeavors to keep them there. So the resistance on the right today to pro-LGBTQ legislation and increasing uh, social acceptance of LGBTQ folks, uh, that anxiety, the resistance to that on the right is really rooted in their anxiety that you know, social hierarchies are changing and worldviews are changing and definitions of reality are changing in, in ways that decenter straight Christian male conservative voices. So queer theology is actually a deeply subversive theology to a lot of the ways people think. And that and, and that's part of the reason why it's it's such a threat. It's and that makes sense because sexuality is such a foundational thing that, that makes us human, right? Sexuality informs so much of our lives, unconsciously so. You know, Freud and other analysts and thinkers, theorists believe that you know, sexuality influences everything. So that's what makes queer theology so powerful. It's really about so much more than just LGBTQ rights or just a way of reading you know, a, a gay-friendly way of reading the Bible. And, and yet, it is important to point out that queer theology is informed by certain texts in the scriptures more than others. You know, key passages and stories for, for queer theologians would be like the Samaritan woman at the well, or the Ethiopian eunuch in, in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus's table fellowship with sex workers. All these people in these texts were considered sexually unclean and were marginalized for their for their gender or their or their sexual identity and yet they are welcomed into the kingdom in these stories right uh, and and they are humanized they they are brought out from the margins which was a radical idea back then and still is but in order to really understand queer theology one has to understand its claim its radical claim that god himself is queer which is a pretty incendiary thing to say in, in some circles, right? That God is, God is queer. What does that mean? To say that God is queer is pretty much the same thing as saying that God is black or God is a woman or God is a stranger. God is wholly other than. God is on the margins. God, um, you know, that's basically what it means. Um, it, it means to say that the God revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth is found on the margins. This God is found in the so-called weak and powerless things 
of the world and the so-called weak and powerless people of the world. It's to say that the God revealed in Christ identified most with those, with the so-called queer folks. The so-called queer folks, meaning the poor, the, the infirm, the disabled, the sinners, the heretics, the, the Samaritans. This is what it means to say that God is queer. In this line of thinking, the incarnation can be seen. In other words, this, this idea of God becoming human, this, this doctrine or this, this Christian idea can be seen as the ultimate queering of God. I, I recently was reading about how the concept of the virgin birth suggests that Jesus was intersex. Maybe, I don't know if you've heard of this before. You know, it's this idea uh, that if there was no male involved in his birth, then he must have had two X chromosomes and was therefore, you know, chromosomally speaking, female. There, there's an actual syndrome called De La Chapelle syndrome, where someone who presents as male, meaning someone with male genitalia or who uh, has masculine features otherwise, um, th th this person can actually have two X chromosomes uh, and therefore be chromosomally female. We call this intersex today. So some queer theologians emphasize this, this point as a way of emphasizing the queerness of God in Christ. Now, a conservative res would respond to that and say, well, the same God that raised Jesus from the dead uh, and that somehow impregnated a virgin, the, the same God that created the world, uh, you know, and the universe in six, six literal days, just 6,000 years ago, that same God could have created Jesus in Mary's womb with an X and a Y chromosome, which, which of course they absolutely must believe because for many evangelicals, an intersex Jesus is just, you know, totally unacceptable, which for queer theologians is exactly why uh, they talk about the possibility of Jesus being intersex. They want to provoke uh, this response from the right and thereby point out the inherent anti-gay and anti-queer bias that resides at the heart of so much of evangelical or conservative Christian theology and, and has so for a very long time. But again, this is what makes queer theology such an incendiary idea or such an incendiary subject. To say that God is queer is to say that God defies normative expectations. To say that God is queer is to say that God defies normative expectations. God defies any and all explanations and descriptions we have of her. He, she, they is beyond what we can domesticate or describe. Queer theology is really a way of reinforcing the utter mystery and incomprehensibility of God. I, I like this quote from Marcella Althus Reed, the scholar I'm getting a lot of my, my work from here today. She writes this, the world is queer indeed, and those who wish to play it straight are failing to see that new horizons are declared holy, and we are propelled on in courage, not certainty. I love that. We are propelled on in courage, not certainty. Where are those who will sit with the fear and uncertainty and not flee in the face of a queer God? The early followers uh, of Christ fled in the face of a crucified God. Very queer indeed. Very queer in the Jewish world. They fled to, quote, life as normal. Um, but it didn't work. It could never work because life, if fully engaged with, is far from normal. Norms are easy conveniences for those who like surveys and statistics. They are not for those who live. Life can never be normal for those who embrace the flesh as divine, end quote. I love that quote. 
this is queer theology. I'll, I'll try to post this, um, this quote in the chat column here in a minute, but this is queer theology. And this means that the end goal of queer theology is not actually to eliminate differences and normalize everything and everybody and, and domesticate everything and everybody into the same homogenous culture or identity, but rather the, the, the goal is to celebrate differences and diversity. The goal is to embrace the so-called other as they are and to let them be different and allow their differences to inform and, and perhaps even disrupt, disrupt us when we get too comfortable and inform and disrupt our politics, inform and disrupt our theology, our, our definitions of God and our definitions of reality. Again, queer theology is about so much more than just LGBTQ rights or a, a gay reading of scripture. So that's basically what queer theology is. And I want to open it up now, as I always do, for a conversation and questions and discussion. Um, I've got uh, a discussion question here, but as always, I wanna begin by just saying, Anybody got uh, a reaction, a question, comment to uh, what I talked about? Queer theology. Let me ask you this. In what ways do you think concepts like male and female are culturally contrived and in what ways are they biological features? Is, is femininity and masculinity biological and something we're born with or is it cultural and environmental or some combo of both? What do you, what do you guys think? Anybody wanna wade into, this, into these waters? <laughs> so before I had kids, I thought that it was like nature versus nurture. Yeah. No, no. The other way around. Sorry. Nurture versus nature. And then I had a girl. I gave her all the trucks, all the balls, all the boy things. And she picked some of them, but she very much leaned towards dolls and girly things. I had a boy. I gave him all the dolls. I gave him all the girly things. I dressed him in pink for a majority of his little life. And he is a rough and humble boy. <laughs> um, so I would say that, and I, I think for me, this is affirming because it's so obvious to me that being gay is not, is not a choice. It is who you are. Mm, and see. so, so, and I think having kids helped me realize this even more it was I because see. there was nothing, you know, there was, there's absolutely nothing I could do to change my kids. They came out exactly who they, they were going to be. Um, and so I don't know, I don't know if that really explains gender roles at all, but it was just a really interesting observation and a really, um, a great affirming journey for me, just seeing how much nature really does take its course. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's good. Thank you, May. Somebody else want to respond or react? Yeah. I wanted to say that it can't be anything but both. It's like the biology is there and our interpretation of the biology is also there. You can't have one or the other. Yeah. It's like color not like 
skin color, but color, you know, uh, the light refracts off of things and pre presents, but what a color means or how you interpret a color or how you use a color is cultural. Yeah. So it can't be anything but both. We, we aren't robots. We have to interpret and we have to use what we see as ways to inform ourselves. And that counts for, for I think, uh, gender expressions, sexuality as well. That's my two bits. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Yeah. I'll just kind of continue on what Jason was saying. Um, I think that it is inevitably both. And it's, even if I don't know what the topic is, if it's like, is it this or that? Then I, I immediately go, oh, it's going to be both, whatever it is. <laughs> you can tell me the context. Like, it's going to be all of the above to some extent. And I think this is a situation where there are some basic, and this gets tricky, right? Because I think there's a lot oh, of yeah. that feel like, oh, if you're like a essentialist or whatever in anthropology terms, I'm not sure. Um, and you think that, well, males have male characteristics and females have female, then, then it's, there's some pushback against that because like, well, what are you saying, you know? And, uh, and it's, uh, it's challenging because I do think we are, kind of like what May was saying, that there are some core characteristics, there's some generalities, I think, that emerge on their own. And I think what we've done culturally is uh, kind of take each thing to the extreme. So, you know, let's be hyper-masculine and hyper-feminine and, and everything has to be, there's a really exaggerated version of what that is. And I think, I don't know why that is. I think it's maybe simpler to think about it that way. I think our brains have a way of like, oh, it just has to be this or that. And it doesn't make you deal with complicated realities of what, what something is because it just makes it easier if you're just kind of splitting it in half and it's like this or that. I don't know, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think um, bringing up the, the term toxic masculinity here, uh, <laughs> I, I think a lot of people that, um, I, I think a lot of toxic masculinity comes from this idea that there's like one way to be masculine, that, that there's, um, that, that, that are cultural and they wouldn't define it as cultural. A lot of folks who I think don't recognize what toxic masculinity is, and I, and we can define it here a little bit, um, but I think we've all seen it, especially in the church. I think masculinity is, is seen as this kind of like sanctified way of being. Uh, there's this kind of patriarchal, uh, this kind of uh, patriarchy or patriarchalism in the church that kind of uh, makes being a man and, and, and obsessed over manhood and, le and male leadership in a way that, but anyway, I, I think a lot of that is rooted in this idea that somehow masculinity is God ordained or it's somehow like a divine revelation and not deconstructible to some degree. I, I do think ideas of masculinity and femininity are often culturally contrived, culturally created. What does it mean to be a man in America? It does not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily the same thing as what it means to be a man uh, in Southeast Asia or in uh, parts of South America or on the African continent. You know, it's a, culture defines so much of these terms. And yet, as May uh, rightly points out, you know, I think there are aspects of our biological makeup. I mean, the fact is testosterone and estrogen, these chemicals absolutely don't just uh, create physical features uh, that are endemically masculine and feminine. But I think 
it's it's obvious they do create behavioral patterns uh, that in general exist, but then do, that there are but there are exceptions, right? Um, but anyway, I guess I'm trying to just kind of open up the conversation a little bit more and talk about how do we define masculinity and femininity? Um, and, and I think, uh, Dan, you were talking about two extremes there. I don't know. I, I guess I, I'm just saying that um, for me, the, the, the right is wrong in, in trying to say that masculinity and femininity, femininity is somehow set by God and scripture and it's just universalized, uh, you know, in this kind of patriarchal worldview, on this kind of American idea of it. Um, and but I'm also resistant to the to the to the secular left, where it kind of where they want to. It seems like extremes on the secular left want to say um, no femininity and, and masculinity, male and female, is is entirely culturally contrived. There is nothing biological about it. Um, does that make sense? I think both extremes uh, can be resisted or seen as uh, incorrect. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? How does what, what other thoughts is, are that is that stimulating or creating for you? Doug, Doug, are you trying to talk? Yeah, I've asked to unmute you. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I got you now. Oh, for some reason I was off and couldn't get back on. Uh, now I'm going to have to regain my thoughts. Uh, just the footwork, because I was born up in the mid, I was born in the Midwest, grew up there. And queer was not a positive word in right. circle. And I'm wondering how, why has the homosexuals accepted it as a um, as a good term? That's a great I'm, I'm question. Curious. Yeah, that's a great question. Does somebody else want to answer that? I I I don't need to, but I can. But. Anthony, <laughs> I could see you unmuting. I didn't call on you. Yes, I appreciate it, but yeah, uh, <laughs> Doug, it's it's uh, it's being kind of reappropriated, kind of almost as like a catch-all term because there are a lot of people who uh, maybe lesbians didn't want to be referred to as gay, or you know, trans people didn't feel included if you just said gay. So queer is just like the catch-all, almost like. BIPOC or whatever acronym people are coming up with now. Yeah, and it's kind of uh, other things that happened in history like that. Like, for example, the word, even the label Christian was originally a derogatory term. I don't know if you know that, Doug, but Christian means little Christ. And the term came out of, uh, you know, first century, uh, basically, I think it was Greco-Roman culture, but it might have just been in Judea. But, it, but originally, Christians were called little Christ in a derogatory way. 
And then they just adopted the term for themselves and they redeemed the term. They wore it as a badge of honor to be called little Christ. And in a way, something similar has happened. I'm, I'm thinking there's other examples in history of, of this, but queer became kind of owned uh, by the LGBTQ community and it's become a catch-all term, as Anthony said. Does that make sense, Doug? Well, I never, I had not heard of that until recently, the yeah. term here as being positive. I have nothing against uh, homosexual people. I know you don't. Very good friends and they're great people. Yeah, and just so you know, the word homosexual has now actually become sort of a negative term. I mean, just for the sake of yeah. pointing it out. <laughs> negative term to now, adding that to LGP, whatever, uh, it's, it's now becoming prominent and in your face. Why? What, what, what the term or what? Uh, yeah, why has it changed, at least in my mind, in my background? Oh, I, I don't know all the reasons why, but I, I do, I, I mean, obviously these issues of LGBTQ inclusion have become prominent in our society because these folks exist and they've been here for a long time. And as our society, frankly, has changed to a great degree in other ways by becoming more acknowledging of things like racism and sexism, so LGBTQ folks are having their voices heard more now than they used to. So it's part of a greater shift in our society, Doug, um, towards uh, uh, other voices being included in, in the dialogue and in the conversation. So that's, that's why. Short answer. Yeah. Do they think of, I think it was being different. They are sure. male, male and homosexuals and whatever. But I don't understand why it's gone from a very negative term to something that the homosexuals are in your face with. Well, you and I should talk about this at another time, but I appreciate the question and your, your questions are valid and uh, we, we've addressed them as best as we can in this space at this moment. But Doug, I would love to continue that conversation with you uh, offline at another time. Uh, especially when we're sitting in the lobby and all yeah, the Yeah, in the lobby. Yeah. Hopefully we can do that again soon. <laughs> Looking appreciate forward. That. Yeah, I know you are, Doug. I appreciate, I appreciate you and your questions. Anybody else have something they want to um, you know, bring up about all this and uh, talk about? queer theology or masculine and feminine on how we define all that and how we negotiate that as, as Christians or uh, as post-evangelicals and uh, have these conversations with family and friends. And it's, it's definitely an interesting topic. I was going to chime in here a little bit. Yeah, Lincoln. <clears throat> Sorry, I have my, uh, my little one right here so oh yes yes <laughs> she makes a lot of noise sometimes so bear with me but um no i uh i i think this whole conversation about um gender expectations is really interesting because um you know me and my family we uh we've kind of gone across those norms quite normally from me and my brothers to my parents and um I, I thought of an example um, when you were talking, Erin, about um, a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's by all um, progressive standards, pretty liberal, but uh, we were, the conversation was actually talking about um, women in the industry of production and engineering. And what I thought was so interesting was like, even a liberal guy, like my friend, a really good friend of mine, 
uh, his mindset was that biologically speaking, women, his, his opinion was that women weren't um, basically like as wired, I guess is the word to say, as wired to do that kind of work. And I said, well, I have to push back because we don't have a lot of women in the industry. So it's very similar to what's happened with technology, right? There weren't a lot of women in tech and then they afforded opportunities for women to be in tech. And then there's more women in tech and then that becomes more women. <laughs> so, you know, it, to me, it's a more a matter of exposure and opportunity. And I said, but even if, you know, let's say, um, we completely did kind of like an affirmative action thing. And now there's all these women that are now going into that industry. You still won't have an accurate picture of whether or not women ha are wired for that or not, because we're not living in a vacuum and we've never had an even playing field. And mm -hmm. what it reminded me of is a little bit of like what May was saying about, you know, exposing her kids to the opposite gender norms, like with toys, it's like, even with that example, they have television, they have uh, books, they have their friends that they go to. So there's a lot of different factors yeah, point. to where, yeah, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. You're never going to have a pure example of what that looks like. So to me, when it comes to religion, we have the same thing, right? As, as kind of the example I brought up, you're never going to see what um, a church or what a, a religion or a spirituality looks like without gender norms because we're never going to have that level playing field we're always coming from a standpoint of what was expected before and so to me I, I like you were saying I think both extremes are um a little bit dangerous a little bit risky I think for me personally I look at it as like we all come from some kind of standard but we ne we shouldn't necessarily be held to that standard nor should we say that there's absolutely nothing that's influenced by biological sex because I don't have the answer to that. But I do think that, you know, when we're talking about sexuality specifically, um, a lot of evangelical people think that they're the same. That's what I, my experience was in this in the church. It's like yeah. spirituality and religious, it's like equal with gender. And so that's why I think we have to be careful about, you know, the expectations that we put with that because we don't want to put it we don't want to idolize it is basically my opinion. I, I think that there should be space to say, yeah, maybe it's influenced by bio biology and maybe it's influenced by nature, you know? Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, thank you for that incredible point of view. And I just want to dovetail on something you said there, you know, the reason why this is such a big issue in evangelical circles is because it's really about something much larger. And, it, and you know, these ideas of who gets to define gender and masculinity and femininity, and you know, this has to do with their fear over basically the social hierarchies changing, but also their fear over not being able to A, center their own voices and B, define reality for the rest of us. And and it's really about those larger issues, I think, for evangelicals. They, they fear that we are, they are losing their grip on, frankly, Western civilization and, and they're losing the culture war. And this is an example of that. When, when they, they really believe that when we lose the ability to, to define male and female, that we have essentially lost the ability to define anything. Does, does, that, does that make sense? Uh, that's really where their minds are at on that. And I pay attention to what some of them say. Um, which is, you know, interesting because I think 
you know, from our perspective as an ex, as ex-evangelicals, I think we've learned to embrace ambiguity. We've learned to embrace the complexity of, of nature, the complexity of the universe, the randomness and the chaos that is endemic to, frankly, cosmic reality and, and our world. And in a sense, we've made peace with that and accepted the world as it's been, as it comes to us, instead of trying to cover over over that with a lot of false certainty and theologies and metaphysics that, assemb- that, that, that attempt to deny the randomness and the chaos and, and the arbitrariness of life. And, and for me, that's kind of what all this really gets into. I'm being very philosophical and theoretical. That's where my mind goes on a, a lot of this. That's where I think it's more deeply rooted. Um, yeah, but anybody want else want to respond today or, or comment on any of this? Good stuff. Thank you, Lakin. I'll share just yeah. something, just something like from my own family experience that has helped, like coming from post-evangelical to like helping our more conservative relatives. Well, my sister has four children and all, all born, born boys, the last one um, with external male genitalia. But however, she, she now like, I can tell you from 18 months, like she would gravitate towards traditional girly things. And I mean, couldn't have been born into a more like boy household. And then when my sister started paying more attention, like, oh, like she would, her name is Jay. She would gravitate towards traditional, like feminine things and say, well, I'm a girl. This was starting two, three years old. And she's pretty like they're my sister, her family, they're pretty awakened and like post-evangelical, so going to church, but um, at first she would kind of not like deny right away, but just crack like, no, you can be a boy and boys can like, you know, to play dress up, boys can like to do this, just kind of affirming like, you can have these activities, but you're, you know, you can be a boy. Um, But then it got to the point where I think, I think she was four or five, and just started really saying like, no, I'm a girl, I'm a girl. And obviously like, I'm thinking my dad or like other people like were like, no, right away. But they really started paying attention because at night she would pray with them. And Jay would ask every night for God to turn her into a girl. And she would ask like, if I die and go to heaven, well, like God, will I be a girl in heaven? So that like, my sister was like, no more, you know, she's going to be a girl. And if that's what your body is telling you, we're going to listen to your body. And obviously like they have amazing like doctor teams and like having so much support and resources, but for our family, like it has just opened, like just opened our eyes so much to what we weren't like the idea of gender norms and the binary and all of that. So, I mean, her brothers, like, knew and grew up with her so it was very easy transition I think she transitioned from like presenting as like she could be a she could be a girl everywhere also but the church was the hardest part because the school was very accepting from kindergarten to first grade I mean my sister would let her wear dresses and everything was fine but at church no and so like I know trans rights are being like attacked in a lot of places right now like in their big which I thought was a pretty awakened mega church in Columbus, Ohio, but they have multiple meetings with the executives and just the fear, like you said, of just disrupting the system. I mean, they weren't going to let her 
like as a five-year-old in a dress go to the women's bathroom like she could not use the bathroom of her choice so they fought for months and months and the church did end up I think changing policy but was very hushed about it but it was like we're not gonna we can't go to a church where our child is no longer like not affirmed but celebrated and I think just again like just seeing the wholeness of God in my little niece now and how happy she is and who she is and who God made her. Um, yeah. Has really helped our family and just greater friends who knew her before as a boy and now as a girl. And, but yeah, that the hardest pushback was from the only place she couldn't be herself was the church for a long time, but she's doing really well and just wanted to share that that's, like a story in my family that has helped us in this non-binary world, the Christian world. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I think I speak for everyone. That's powerful. Thank you for yeah, sharing that here. And I just wanted to comment and say the church has blood on its hands in this area. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's remember that. And um, as church-going Christians, we need to be very vocal about that and, and declare our own um, and I need to say that I used to be part, I, I, I used to, um, you know, be part of that sin. And in a way, I still am as a Christian, right? We can't, we can't deny that. And we need to point that out and, and <sighs> grieve and, and repent uh, for, for the sins of the church. Uh, and, and how I won't go more into it than that. But I mean, it really has blood on its hands in this area. Um, yeah. Good. Anybody else say you want to share? I, this, I'll try to make this quick quick because yeah. we're running out of time, but it was really helpful for me to come across these definitions of of, of sex as our is a def, the definition of sex as male and female terms referring to biological and to, anatomy, physiological differences, whereas sexuality is uh, a culture's given practices and notions about what love and desire and intercourse look like. And then gender is more socially constructed roles. So you can have, so it, you, you're, you're kind of defining each differently. And I think in the church, they try to put them all together. If yeah, you are biologically way this way, then you must have this role and you must behave this way sexually. But in reality, the experience is more nuanced. There is a biological, physiological nature to it. There's the cultural idea of what sexuality is and normative, which changes throughout time and history and place and location on earth. And then there are roles which can be different, you know, all over the place. You know, what is considered a male role in this culture may be considered a female role in this culture. And so those are, can, those can be, you know, culturally uh, created. Um, based on time and place and needs of the group. So that was, that's always, that kind of structure has helped me understand of like, what, what are we talking about? Which of these are we actually talking about? Are we talking about gender? Are we talking about sex? Are we talking about sexuality? Because they're different. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, Nathan. Anybody else? Great conversation. You know, tough topic, great conversation as usual, everybody. Thank you for being here. And uh, with that, I'll close our little time together. Um, Board of Directors, why don't we take...